In this episode of Startups with the Rest of Us, Rob and I are going to be talking about the pitfalls of several commonly recommended marketing tactics. This is Startups with the Rest of Us, episode 412. Welcome to Startups for Us, the podcast helps developers, designers, and entrepreneurs be awesome at building, launching, and growing software products. Whether you built your first product or you're just thinking about it, I'm Mike. And I'm Rob. And we're here to share our experiences to help you avoid the same mistakes we've made. What's going on this week, Rob? You know, we received a voicemail from someone, I believe he was in Brisbane, Australia, but it was definitely an Australian accent and I could barely make out the audio. So the audio quality was so bad that we don't even know his name or um, the question he asked. So if that is you, please call us back or better yet, just record an MP3 on your, your local machine and just attach it or send us a Dropbox link to questions at startups for the rest of us.com because it sounded like a, a good question, but couldn't really make out what he was saying during that. How about you? What are you up to? Well, I'm uh, I'm in the middle of testing kind of a, a new roadmap process with one of my customers using Teamwork. And the basic idea is that I set up a project in Teamwork, mainly because this customer this customer has been with me for a while and they've got some, um, it's, it's not really complicated stuff that they're asking for that they need, but they kind of need assurances of like timeline and implementation and everything else. And I've got like a, a roadmap that I've kind of been using in the background using Trello for a while, but I just haven't kept up with it. I've never really gotten into Trello like most people have. So what I did was I created a project in Teamwork and then I invited them to look at it and they had the I took their requirements and threw them in there. And basically I'm working through them and it gives me the opportunity to comment on those things directly and allow them to comment back on them as well. So it creates this really nice feedback loop between those things. And then I haven't added any other customers into it yet, but I think that that might be something I look into in the future. But I've looked at other like road mapping tools in the past and I've never really quite found one that suited me. Hmm. So is this for communicating your roadmap to customers? It's more for like if a customer asks for something, how do I communicate it to like the rest of the customers that like this is what is going to be going on and this is kind of what the priority is. It's a little bit different than like a bug tracker. You know, obviously like if there's a bug or somebody needs support or something like that, it's different. But I'm the only one who can add stuff in so that it's visible and but anybody can comment on it or at least so it seems like. Yeah. Okay. I'm trying to think. There's a tool that we used at Drip, and of course, I can't remember the name of it. And we never used, we, we always used it to announce what we had built, right? So it's like, this is what we released in September. And we could, do, it was, it was like a change log tool, but it was, it was user friendly, right? It was not super techie. And I'm trying to think if you could use that pretty easily to suggest what we, like, here's what we're working on in order. I think there was actually a little feature where you could just add kind of a bulleted list, but it was super stripped down, right? It was this very simple tool, you know, it was like 10 bucks a month or something. Um, so it was someone's, probably someone's side project, although it was pretty well designed. Is that all you need is just a list of things? You know, why not just have maybe a public Google doc or even just like just a static page, you know, on your website that's like slash roadmap. And it's just like five things in a bullet list. Like here are the five next major five efforts we're doing. Well, there's two things. One is when they, uh, we've been going back and forth through email and I said, well, you know, look, I've got, I understand you've got all these different things that you want to see, but like, I need a, a list of them. Like just going back and forth, like one at a time is really not working. So it's like, like send me the whole list. So they sent me the entire list and kind of broke it out into three different sets. Like these are things that we need very, very soon. These are things that can wait a little while. And these are things we'd like to eventually see down the road. And I looked at them and they all 
map pretty well to like my internal roadmap anyway, which I have in my bug tracker, but I'm not going to pay for other people outside the business to have an account there just because it's going to get expensive. So I was trying to figure out how do I work back and forth with them because I I had a bunch of questions on some of them and there were comments on other things. So it was a question of like, well, how do I work with them to flesh out what each of these things is? Because if I've got like a, an email that's, let's say it's two pages or something like that of like bullets that they email to me, it's hard to go back and forth about one line item or five line items in an email. So I really needed something that was going to break them out so that I could comment on things individually and like separate them a little bit more. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah. So it's not just for community for outbound communication. It's literally for, it's kind of like you're, you're almost collaborating with a client. It's, it's a lit, you know what I'm saying? It's not that they're paying you for this and not that you're going to build it exactly as they're specking, but they really are. It's more, much more a customer development process than it is. Hey, we got suggestions and here's what we're going to build. Yeah. Like I'd say customer development is probably a better way to phrase it than I did. It is a lot of back and forth to figure out like, is this going to work for you? Or what exactly did you mean by that? And you know, how are you going to use this? For example, because some of the questions are like, I hear what you're saying and it kind of makes sense, but what are you going to use this for? Because I, I want to know, like, is there a better way to do this? Or was there something else that we could do that either short term or, you know, manually that would get them there faster? Right. Cool. Yeah, it sounds interesting. So I, I think of it as less of a roadmap process and more of a, I guess it's, it is impacting your roadmap, but it's more like a customer collaboration or a customer development process that you're doing using teamwork. That makes sense? Yeah, it is. Cool. So I went on Google and searched for roadmap software a while back, and I came across all these other other things. Like there's product board and aha.io and product plan and prod pad and things like that. And it's just none of them really seemed to fit what I was looking for in terms of like this back and forth communication with like either individual customers or with like small groups of them. So I, I really think I just want to find, a, identify a couple more customers to maybe work on this with, but it's really a matter of like, does it make sense in that particular context for that customer, you know? Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Hey, have you seen MailChimp's new branding? You know, I got an email about it, but I haven't looked at it yet. Yeah, it's a trip. I, I'm trying to even think I saw a news article. I think I was on Spark Toro trending. Spark Toro is, is Rand Fishkin's uh, new startup, and there was a trending page, and they talked. There was an article written about Mailchimp's new branding. But um, I mean, they changed. You know, obviously, I've I, I think of Mailchimp as the. It's like the ESP, right? There are other email service providers, but they are the biggest one. They're the ones that send a billion emails a day, and like the H1 or, or I'm sorry, the title tag on their homepage, which is what will appear in Google now is marketing platform for small business. So there, you know, I don't know if it's a pivot as much of just a rebrand, but like their homepage used to say, like, we help you sell more stuff or sell more stuff with MailChimp or something like that. It was very much kind of a, a you know, an e-commerce focus or a commerce focus, I should say. But their headline is now your business was born for this, become the brand you want to be with smarter marketing built for big things. It's very very interesting. It's a gutsy move. The I don't know. The colors are different. I feel like I actually like the design of the site. It's definitely jarring. You know, I mean, remember when the drip rebrand happened and there was the the magenta and the you know the other colors. I feel like this is similar but different. But the headline and kind of the value prop on it feels not nearly as focused as what. I, I've always thought of as MailChimp, like the fact that that the subheadline has become the brand you want to be with smarter marketing built for th- big things like that has that doesn't resonate with me 
as a customer and, and never would have any at any point in my entrepreneurial career. So I'm concerned. I mean, these guys are smart, right? I mean, maybe, let's, let's not fault MailChimp, but I feel like maybe they've made a misstep here. I don't know. I think that there's, it's easy to think that like if a company changes their branding that, oh, this, this company isn't for me anymore. Or this tool isn't for me. But at the same time, like the tool itself hasn't changed. It's really just their marketing message. And I think it was, I forget who said this, but the line is something along the lines of like, what got you here won't get you there. And I mean, as you said, like they're sending a billion emails a day, but like that doesn't necessarily acquire them more customers faster. Like they need a marketing message that resonates with a larger group of people than they currently have or they're currently after because they've probably saturated the market. I mean, that the ESP market is, is really highly saturated. There's tons of players there. So they need to differentiate themselves and go after people who are, are either just not using something or are using something else and want to find something that is going to fit them better. Yeah, and that makes sense. And, you know, that's the thing when you're not inside and privy to the conversations that they're having and who they're competing against when they're going for big deals, you don't know. And so that's where I'm like, who who am I to say? But this is my, you know, opinion on the outside. Again, with the drip stuff, when there was that rebrand, it was right at the, I mean, right before, you know, I was was leaving the company, it was kind of happening and rolling out. There were, I mean, there were so many, you know, naysayers and, and haters on social media and all this stuff. And, but they weren't privy to the information that is actually going on inside the company. So I guess what I'm saying is, it would be it could be so easy for me to sit here and just rail on this Mailchimp rebrand, right? Because it's different, quote unquote. But I I trust that Mailchimp is pretty damn smart and pretty good at what they do, and that they took the information, you know, and and that it's either going to to work or they'll change. Like if that headline doesn't resonate with people, they'll change it. And I think that's a thing when you make these big gutsy moves and you're trying to land and expand or pivot into a larger space or whatever it is they're doing, apply to more people, as you said, you have to do risky stuff at some point, you know? And what's interesting is in early days of a startup, you take a lot of risks, but no one's there to notice and no one cares. But when you have 1,000, 10,000, 50,000 customers and you take these risks, you know, a lot of people get up in arms over it, but really it's the same risk that you've been taking all along. Yeah. I just, I think for large companies like that, it, it doesn't matter nearly as much as we might sit here and armchair quarterback it, you know, Monday morning quarterback, like it, just because their existing customers are still going to be paying the money. It's about them acquiring new customers, not appealing to the ones that they already have. That's kind of the way I see it. That's the thing. As long as they don't, as long as you don't do such a pivot that you completely turn your existing customers off and have a bunch of churn and stuff. But man, that would be really hard to do, especially with ESPs where there is some lock-in in the space. Yeah, it is it is hard to move from one to another. <laughs> I've done that before. It sucks. Yep. So what are, we, uh, what are we talking about today? So today we're going to be talking about a couple of pitfalls of some commonly recommended marketing tactics. And this topic was inspired by a tweet from Scott over at Kickoff Labs, and we'll link that into the, the show notes. But he'd said that one of the worst startup diseases is A-B testing, such a colossal waste of time when you don't have significant traffic. And it got me to thinking, like, what other things are there that are commonly recommended marketing tactics that I, I see and hear about or you would see and hear about that are either a colossal waste of time or there's pitfalls or things that you don't necessarily know about until you get into it and only to realize that, you know, you're kind of walking into a hornet's nest and it's going to be either more trouble than it's worth or it's just not going to work for you or like it's something that you can do short term but it's not going to be sustainable for you 
Cool. Let's dig in. I think there, uh, I was actually pretty excited when you talked about this, you know, doing this topic today, because I think there are a lot of, I won't say misinformation, but it's more like myths, you know, are people kind of making things look easier than it actually is in order to sell things, in order to sell their software or sell their info products. Yeah. And I think that's the the big piece of it is that they make it look easier or sound easier than it actually is. So for split testing, we'll start off there because of the, the tweet from Scott. But, you know, you need substantial traffic and most early entrepreneurs don't have it. And, it. and it's not just that you need substantial traffic. You need substantial traffic in a short enough time window where your test is going to be able to give you at least some sort of significant results. The other thing that I think is a little bit misleading is about whether or not the split testing that you actually could do if you were to get 1% results or an increase every month for 12 months, like would you actually be that much better off? And I have seen some odd anecdotes where people will say, hey, we did all these split tests or we split tested something against itself and one was significantly different than the other. So it does make me wonder a little bit as to whether or not with the resources that we as small business owners have available, like, can we actually even effectively execute on that stuff in a way that is going to move the needle for our business? Yep. And, you know, if you're thinking about, if you're in the early days of your startup and you're, you're trying to build something people want, you're in customer development, you have a website, you get a little bit of traffic, split testing is the furthest thing from your mind or should be the furthest thing from your mind. You need to be talking to customers in those early days to figure out what is it that I can build that people are willing to pay for that's different enough from the competition that I can communicate that and people will will sign up. I would not even consider any kind of split testing until, you know, typically you're going to split test your homepage or your pricing page or your, your sign-up funnel. And I would not even consider it before I had, let's say, 5,000 or 10,000 uniques a month. And really, at that point, I mean, it depends on what revenue is and if I have the time to test a headline here or there. But if I were to do split testing at that point, let's say I had 10,000 uniques a month coming to the homepage, I would probably just set up like one or two alternate headlines and just let it run and see what happens. But it wouldn't be some massive effort where I'd be redesigning the entire page to do, you know, some I don't know, spending a bunch of time to, to try to get some major difference in conversions because there are other levers you should be pulling at that point. When you have five or 10K uniques, you should be more worrying on about more traffic or you should be worrying about, frankly, more converting more of the existing trials you have to paid customers. That's going to move the needle. It's going to tend to move the needle more than spending a lot of time on split testing. The next marketing tactic is using affiliate programs. And I see a lot of startups from like Product Hunt and Betalist and a couple of other places that have kind of started up where they're pitching this affiliate program and saying, hey, you can manage your affiliate program through our SaaS and you'll be able to get more customers for your business. But the reality is that the attribution itself is fine within those pieces of software, but finding the affiliates who are able to bring in enough leads to make it worth your time is actually pretty hard. And I've done this uh, a couple of times and it's it seems to me like the software itself is reasonably straightforward in most cases to implement, but finding the people who are actually going to bring leads that are qualified to you is a lot more challenging. It's just you, you have to do a lot of education to those people and you have to make it worth their time and you have to be finding affiliates who have a substantial traffic source already or existing list where you can point them back to your website and give them like an affiliate code or something like that and give them an offer that's actually going to get them to convert. And if you don't have all of those things, then it's just not going to work. And it doesn't matter how many people you sign up for your affiliate program, you need like the, the qualified leads to be coming in. 
Yeah, finding affiliates is way harder than most people think, unless this is a primary strategy for you and you have a network. I mean, the, the people who I've seen make it work, let's talk about Clay Collins with Lead Pages. It was built mostly on the affiliate model. And he did that because he knew all the people in the internet marketing space. And he had the clout to get them to do webinars with him. And it wasn't just, hey, send me some traffic. It was, let's do a webinar. And then, you know, he'd pitch an annual deal and it was like 50% off. And I mean, there was there was time pressure and there were bonuses, I should say, that you got if you sold there. So that's, that's how he grew it that fast. And ConvertKit did the same thing, right? It was the same playbook. If you're going to do that, then do that and go all in on it, you know? And I, I recall at one point, like Clay was doing... 20 webinars a month or something in the early days, 15 or 20. It was crazy. It was just a machine. In that case, you're an exception, right? You're not going to start from a cold network where you don't know other people who have big audiences and make affiliate programs work from the start. It's going to be a ton of work. In addition, the, the process I just talked about, really, I've only seen it work in one niche and it's in this aspirational business niche, right? It's in the people who want to, to be bloggers or be info marketers, you know, and they're being sold info on how to become, you know, start your own business from home, right? You look at, at lead pages and convert kit and they both serve that same kind of Pat Flynn ish niche. You can't just go to enterprise software, and think that you're going to do this this big affiliate model, right? Sell to Fortune 500 companies or Fortune 1000 companies using that. Or even, you know, freelancers would be possible because there are people with those audiences, but it, would, it wouldn't work to the same extent that it does because the audiences just aren't as big and they aren't as prone to buy. I'd say there's one or two other spaces that I know of that are similar to that, that aspirational thing where you can sell them the, you know, the idea or the promise of, hey, you're going to, you know, have a landing page provider or here, here's an ESP and here's how to like start your blog and, and make money. But beyond those, it is really, it is really hard to get an affiliate program, profitable one off the ground. I had an affiliate program with Hittail and Drip, and they made money. They were profitable, but they were not major driving factors. Even when we did joint ventures and we did joint venture webinars, you know, we'd do JV mailings. It made money and it was fine, but it wasn't. These were not the major drivers of growth that I've seen in in you know most of my startups. So again, not saying it can't work, but it's definitely different than it appears. Yeah, it's definitely a lot harder than it appears. You had mentioned enterprise software sales where affiliate models wouldn't really work. And I, I agree with that, but there's a different, a slightly different model for those enterprise deals where the it's basically a reseller arrangement. So you don't have direct contact with the enterprise companies. You resell to other companies. You sign them on as resellers, which is a slightly different take on an affiliate program, but it's not substantially that much different. You know, it's the same basic idea, like somebody else is kind of bringing the lead in. The difference with a reseller is that the reseller is basically managing the customer relationship versus with the affiliate, they're bringing them in and then they're kind of hands off at that point. So the next one is content marketing. And I think that the, the content marketing has been kind of all the rage for the past several years, and I don't see it necessarily ending anytime soon. But I, I think the bottom line for content marketing is that it is time and resource intensive to generate content on a repeated basis. So if you're trying to blog once a week or put out a few new articles each 
week or each month, that's fine. But it's not just the generation of those, which is time and resources intensive. It's also the marketing and distribution of those. So if you're trying to post it to Quora and various startup lists and out to your email newsletter and social media, like that gets to be time and resource intensive, especially if you're trying to cross promote between different channels and schedule everything like it just gets complicated. And there's also a very long lead time to getting results and getting measurable results from them. So it could be anywhere from, you know, three to six months could be as much as a year or 18 months. And regardless of that, like it's a lot of time and effort to get that engine running. But once it's running, you'll do really well with it. But it just takes a long time to get there. And there's probably better places for you to spend your time if you're early on. Yeah, this one's tough because content marketing can and does work. You just got to remember content marketing is more about SEO and it is a long-term play. That's why, you know, when we get the questions from someone like, hey, I'm at 2K MRR, should I start my content marketing? It's like, well, it kind of depends. It kind of depends, probably not, but it really depends. Like what what's your what niche are you in? You know, are there distribution networks or or not even networks, but you know, like growthhackers.com and Y Combinator, are there distribution avenues for you to get the content out? And are there people kind of daily reading stuff like this? And are you gonna be able to drive it? Are you gonna build your list? And then long term, are you targeting SEO terms, you know, organic terms that are gonna bring traffic? Because that's that's how the play has really been successful for these these larger companies. So it is of the three we've talked about so far, I think content marketing is is kind of you know the best and most viable. But your critiques are absolutely correct in that it often takes a long time to get results and it is very resource intensive to generate content at the quality and these days at the length that's required to make a dent because there's so much noise, man. I have not been on the social news sites kind of, you know, like inbound.org used to be one, but it shut down. Growthhackers.com is still there. Uh, Hacker News, you know, even SparkToro trending. I had not been on any of those. I just don't go on them regularly. And I, I looked at a few of them this morning and it's like the volume of of content is crazy. It's like so much more and so much of it is targeted, like highly targeted. And you can tell it's targeted to tr- just to try to get clicks to it. You know, it's, it's a startup that is trying to get people to come through from, from Hacker News or from Product Hunt or from whatever to generate traffic to then funnel into the leads. And, and we've all been there. Like, I totally know that that playbook, you know, I've, I was doing it back in 2012, 2013, or even, even before that for my blog, uh, in 2010, but there is just a lot of noise out there and sort of rise above that. It's a lot of time and money to create content that is good enough to warrant people's attention. The fourth item on our list is social media marketing. And by this, I don't mean paid ads. So like, you know, if you're going on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or whatever, like you can pay for advertising, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about building a audience and then trying to market content to them. And I think the reason that this can be a a substantial pitfall for people is that it seems like it should be easy, but it's time intensive to gain followers. And when you post things, a lot of times only a fraction of your followers are going to see a particular piece of content. So for example, I think on Twitter, the stat that I've heard is about 5% of your followers are going to see any given tweet that you put out. So if you have even 100,000 followers, only about 5,000 of them are going to see that. So the 
strategy to overcome that is like you tweet multiple times a day and you use something like Buffer to put those tweets out at different times today to try and catch people in different time zones. But at that point, like I feel like you're probably also oversaturating the people who are on Twitter a lot and it could very well be a turnoff to those people. But again, it's, it's a matter of like what type of product are you promoting to people and is it going to be relevant to the people who are on Twitter? You know, I tried Twitter advertising and for Audit Shark, for example, and it just absolutely did not work because the people who are in the enterprise are just not the type of people who are looking for security software on Twitter. Yeah, and that's not to say that Twitter advertising won't work for anyone. I also think like LinkedIn could be better for, you know, for you, but I tried LinkedIn many times with multiple products and never got LinkedIn advertising to to pay itself back. So, you know, again, not saying it won't work. It's just going to take trial and error if you can get it to work at all. On that note, James Kennedy is going to be speaking at MicroConf Europe on a LinkedIn strategy for acquiring leads. So that might be interesting to you. Awesome. That'll be a cool one. Yeah, so I agree, man. Social media marketing is great for B2C and it's even great for or can be great for prosumer stuff, aspirational, uh, you know, entrepreneurship or even uh, photographers, right? They tend to be aspirational. But when you're talking about real like sales tools or real email marketing tools or real, you know, real tools that you want people to buy and use for years and you need businesses that are, you know, making decisions, comparing you to competitors and all that, social media is a nice to have. It is not going to be something in general that's going to drive, that's going to drive your bottom line if you are a B2B SaaS app. I'm sure there's an ex- there's one exception to this, maybe two. You know, I'm sure there are a couple. But overall, as a bootstrapper or as someone who is really just trying to block and tackle, there are so many more things you could be doing than tooling around on Facebook and Twitter. Yeah, and I think the real challenge here is just the fact that, like, because we tend to be like entrepreneurs tend to be on the internet a lot, so we see uh, like Twitter a lot and we see Facebook a lot. So it's kind of natural to assume, hey, I should test that out or use that as a marketing strategy. But again, it's just it's time intensive to gain the followers. And the reality is that what you want in most of those cases is actually just send them over to an email list anyway, so that you got their email address. So assuming you can get like an engine up and running that's going to do that for you, then that's fine. But you still need a way to make it work. And it's just, it can be very time intensive to gain those followers. And it's not obvious always how you're going to be able to do that. So the last one we have on our list today is offline advertising. And by this, like you can take it in a bunch of different directions. It could be uh, like billboard advertising. It could be sponsoring a conference or a podcast or anything where the direct attribution is a little bit more challenging. So that also includes things like sending postcards or physical mailers to people. I think there's a couple of, I think it's, is it GRC marketing that does that? They kind of advocate that a lot for like the sending out the bulky mail to people to just kind of get their attention. And that works great for those situations where you have a higher price point product and it's or it's a service and you know there's going to be a relationship that you're trying to establish with them or you know to the the dollar amount is high enough that it's worth it to send those the biggest downside of those is that it's extremely hard to do the attribution in most cases and then there's also a, a much longer iteration cycle so instead of looking at 
couple of weeks for like paid ads on Facebook or Twitter, you're looking at a month, two months, maybe three months for an iteration cycle to send out a mailer and then figure out whether or not you got results from it, track those back and then make some adjustments or tweaks and then move on to the next group. And it can get very complicated to juggle all of those things at once. Even if you're just using, you're doing it repeatedly over the course of a month or two, it's just going to suck up all of your time and attention. You're not really going to be able to do very much else. Yeah, it is expensive too. You know, it's a long turnaround time and the iteration cycles are just, I would say, too long for a startup. Now, once you're down the line and you have product market fit and if you're in a a space where offline is a a really good option, obviously you could experiment with it, but this is not something I wouldn't be messing with in in the early days. And as you said, attribution is rough. I did uh, some trade publication magazine advertising for one of my products once or twice. And it, you know, it didn't work this again, that's not to say it wouldn't work for you, but I quickly realized how expensive it was and just how you can't tell if it's working. You know, there's an the old adage, 50% of advertising doesn't work. You just can't tell which 50%. And that's when people are talking about magazine and TV and radio and, and that kind of stuff. Obviously you can tell which 50% works when you're online and we're spoiled by that in all, in all honesty. And I think that's a, a real boon to the online marketer today. So offline is, yeah, not something that I think you should uh, get into lightly unless you really know what you're doing. Yeah. And I do know people who make offline advertising work. The problem is just that the iteration cycles are, you know, anywhere from eight to 12 weeks just to find out whether or not a particular mailer got through to the right people and whether they got those people into their sales funnel. It does work, you know, especially in his particular business. But Again, it's just the time, the lead time for you to go from one iteration cycle to the next and get the information back. It's just hard if you're still trying to make ends meet. So I think generally speaking, when you are trying to evaluate a marketing tactic as to whether or not it's going to work for you or decide whether it's going to be something that you want to try, there's a couple of things to keep in mind. The first one is, is there a complicated setup that needs to be done first? Like, are you going to need to go create a bunch of accounts? Are you going to need to integrate a bunch of different tools together? Is there ongoing effort that needs to be done? Like, are you going to have to constantly be creating or doing things? Any of those things where it takes your involvement on a very repeated basis is going to eat into the feasibility of using that strategy in the long term. So for blogging, for example, or content marketing, if you have to do that every single week, it can be difficult. It's not to say you can't outsource it. If you have money, you can obviously substitute that in for, you know, your time. But again, like that's a a resource trade-off that you are going to need to make down the road. So you can start off doing it yourself or you can outsource it to somebody else. But those are the types of things that you need to think about when you're trying to figure out, like, is this something that I'm going to try and do long-term or are there better places that you could be spending your time? Right, because it's it's one thing to intentionally try something and know that it's not going to scale, but to do it as an experiment. It's another thing to try a bunch of different tactics that really you don't have much hope of sustaining without really doubling down on them, right? If you shotgun it and you try five different things, but all of them need a tremendous amount of resources and effort, and you only go 10% of the way with each of them, and you throw an article out here, and you set up an affiliate plan here, and you do two Twitter and Facebook posts a week, it's like you're not doing anything well, Right. But if you dive into one and experiment and figure out, is there any way to make this possible? And you dig in for a month or six weeks or whatever it takes. And you do these kind of sprints where you dig in, learn everything you can about it and execute on it. Or you hire someone to do that. If you have the budget, determine, is this going to work right now, given my business? Yes or no. Answer that question and then move on to the next thing. 
that is much more of the approach that, that I would recommend and the approach that I've taken in the past. You don't need many of those to work in order to scale your business. You, if you find one or two pretty substantial uh, marketing practices and you figure out the angle and you figure out how to get in there, that can grow your business to well into seven figures. It doesn't take 10 different, different marketing tactics to get there. And with that, we'll wrap up for the day. If you have a question for us, call our voicemail number at 888-801-9690 or email us at questions at startupsfortherestofus.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from We're Out of Control by Moot, used under Creative Commons. Subscribe to us on iTunes by searching for startups and visit startupsfortherestofus.com for a full transcript of each episode. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.